tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The trustees of Kamehameha Schools shaped the policy of the state's largest landowner and determined the direction of one of the wealthiest schools in the nation. It sits on a trust close to $15 billion now, and it is in the process of filling a vacancy on the board, and there may be another trustee slot to also fill later this year. HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi is here to join uh, to talk about KS. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Catherine. That's right. We've got three finalists currently in the running to replace outgoing trustee development uh, consultant Lance Wilhelm, whose term expires at the end of June. And those finalists are an entrepreneur. Roland Lagon and uh, Michelle Kohane, Senior Vice President at the Hawaii Community Foundation and former Deputy Director at the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, and then the UH West Oahu Chancellor Minute, Annie Benham. So whoever is selected will replace Lance at the end of June, and then I believe Bank CFO Robert Nobrega, one of the uh, current trustees on the board. Uh, His term will expire later this year as well. So that search will be uh, going on. And for folks who might not be familiar, you said it well, a $15.1 billion uh, trust, Kamehameha Schools. This oversees thousands of acres statewide, as well as three school campuses at Kapalama, Pukalani, and Kia'o. Uh, we spoke to the most recent addition to the board, Kanakamali scholar and uh, educator, Noilani Goodyear Ka'opua. She just completed her first year uh, on the board a couple of days ago this month. She's the first educator in decades, really, to be selected to serve on the board of trustees at KS. And she spent all of her, she's a lifer, as they like mm-hmm. to say, K through 12 at Kamehameha Kapalama. And she feels very privileged to have had that experience. But she also got to see through her other experiences that a vast majority of Native Hawaiians didn't have that opportunity to go to Kapalama, at least at the time. This was before the expansion to the neighbor islands. And that really drives her in her job as trustee. That's one of the reasons why after I graduated from Kamehameha and from the university, I have dedicated the majority of my career to public education. I would love to see us continue to expand our reach to touch more Kanaka, to work in partnership with community organizations and the public school system to strengthen the ecosystem of supports that we provide for Native Hawaiian children and for all keiki. We've kind of been seeing this over the last decade or so. Uh, You know, there's a limited amount of seats in the classroom at these campuses. And to really be able to reach other Native Hawaiians in the communities, we've seen Kamehameha schools expand to the Ma'ili Learning Center, for example, out in Waianae and finding folks outside of campus. But Kamehameha schools has gone through so many changes since 1883 when, when Princess Pernice Bawahi Bishop, like many of her contemporaries, Ali'i at the time, wills her land to provide for the education of Native Hawaiian children. But she dies shortly thereafter So upon opening in 1887, the trust and the schools uh, are actually run exclusively by by white men with with close ties to the sugar elite uh, responsible for the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. And this is a history that Goodyear Ko'opua has highlighted in her research, but also something that I think the school and its leaders are sort of figuring out uh, how to address moving forward, right? And so this has had an enormous impact on sort of that early days of the trust where instead of focusing on culture-based education or college prep, which is what we know of as being one of the main focuses on campus right now, KS was focused more on manual labor and military training. And so the school's goal at the time was in many ways to assimilate Native Hawaiian uh, to being more American. So Goodyear Ka'opua referenced a strategic plan KS had actually uh, done with independent consultant Booz Allen Hamilton after 1959 statehood, where it predicted sort of what they believed would happen at KS over the coming decades. One of the things that I think they got wrong was that Hawaiians would become more and more like any other American, that our cultural difference would be less and less important and that Hawaii in general would be less distinct from the rest of America. And of course, you know, the movements of the 1970s completely, you know, show that that prediction was was wrong. And um, there were so many Kanaka, some of whom were Kamehameha graduates, that reminded us that we are who we are because of this place and because of our connection to our ancestors. 
So that really impacted Kamehameha and continues to the direction that Goodyear Kaupua sees KS going in today is directly connected to those efforts over the last 50 years to really reclaim the Hawaiian language and the culture and really gives uh, what she thinks is the OEV edge or gives Hawaiian children that edge. At every level of the institution, now there are people who believe wholeheartedly that Hawaiian culture-based education, Hawaiian language, our ikekupuna is incredibly valuable and that that should be at the center of what we do at Kamehameha. And so that's going to be on the minds, I believe, of all finalists and, of course, the state probate court who makes the final decision on selecting that trustee and will hopefully be on the minds of folks looking in at this process as we move forward. Right, because they have an opportunity to uh, to provide their mana'o, too, about who gets selected because KS used to be Bishop Estate and they have <laughs> lots of land holdings. And, uh, yeah, they, they really influence a lot of what goes on in Hawaii. So, yeah, it, it's no, be interesting to watch. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Right. We've been talking to HPR Kuvehi's Hiri- Hello. We've been talking to <laughs> HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi. You can read more on this issue at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Honolulu Waldorf School's Summer Fun Program, now open for registration, featuring movement and field games and hands-on activities for preschool to grade 6. Begins June 12th, honoluluwaldorf.org. Today on The Daily, on opening day of baseball's 2023 season, Mike Schmidt on a historic plan to save the sport from the tyranny of the home run. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Our reality check today looks at what's being done on the modular housing front. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story today by Thomas Heaton, and he's taking a look at uh, where this might uh, take hold on the Big Island. Right. And, you know, we've been talking, more than talking, there's actually been uh, building um, use of modular or prefabricated housing. We can call them micro homes or tiny homes. That is specific to helping with homelessness, right, and affordable housing. Thomas's story today it does focus on the Big Island, and it particularly focuses on Agland farmers. So farmers trying to get workers to work their fields, their coffee fields, their orchids, all sorts of crops. Uh, but as you know, rental housing is not cheap. And so could you, in fact, uh, use modular prefab homes, maybe even on wheels, right, that you could actually move them from lot to lot, if you will? It seems to be gaining traction uh, as, a, as a reasonable solution to a long-held problem, which, as you know, the zoning, land use, regulations, and permitting process is a, a horrible bureaucracy statewide. At least we're seeing some progress, it seems, from Thomas's story on Hawaii County. Yeah, I love how he uh, he phrased it. He said that the council recently smoothed over the building codes for <laughs> factory housing. <laughs> He has a, a touch for language. Yeah, I was smoothed over specifically um, for prefab, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason is, is because the, the forecast is clear that you're going to need in Hawaii County about 1,300, 500 new houses by the end of this decade. That is not that far away. The county has also expanded its planning and permitting teams, manpower. Issuing those permits has always been a, a factor, according to Thomas's reporting. It looks like about 18 of those prefab models have already been approved, and looks like there's another 81 permits that are under review. Yeah, I mean, that is really interesting. So they're really pushing ahead. I think maybe it's farther along than maybe other counties. I don't know. I, I think so, too. In fact, uh, Thomas has a line in there saying that if, if that home, that house, that unit is already approved, you could get this approved within six days. I mean, that's a really quick a movement towards getting something placed on your ag land. And there is a pressing need here. The Big Island has, I think, nearly 70% of the state's agricultural land. I mean, it makes sense. It is a big island. <laughs> it's very fertile. 
and uh, regulations have been so stringent for so long, and the idea that maybe, as I said, you could rotate these dwellings, move them to where you need, is really appealing. You know, in many ways, it's kind of kind of resembles a, a plantation camp model, right? Yes. Except those those plantation camps were permanent for decades, for so many, and you can still visit Waipahu today and visit the uh, the village that's been recreated there. But it's an interesting idea um, to uh, take care of this pressing need to help folks out. Well, you know, we had always heard about oh the 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 unions were a little leery mm-hmm. about prefab homes because it would take away jobs. But, you know, Thomas uh, has information about what local companies that are teaming up to try and produce these homes here. Right. I mean, what they're saying is, is this is not just a, a business issue for their particular company, that it's a, a community issue, a statewide issue. There is, in fact, still resistance, uh, particularly from the carpenters union, from about 200 other contractors of that Pacific resource partnership PRP, right, represents. Mm-hmm. And, and they do, in fact, raise the very same things that you mentioned. This will be a threat to good jobs. This will be a threat to wages. Uh, they say, actually, they told Thomas, look, there's no silver bullet to solving the problem here. But there does seem to be growing a recognition that maybe you could at least ease the pain a little bit uh, by having these units. I thought it was interesting that Thomas looked back to the Kilauea eruption there on Hawaii Island back in 2018 and, you know, destroyed 700 homes, a tremendous tragedy there in the Puna area. Well, it turns out, in part, one way to help some of those folks was these micro shelters. They did build about 20 of them to help folks out because, you know, you didn't have any place to go and you couldn't certainly go back to your home covered under uh, feet and feet of lava. So um, we're trying to see whether there's a, a compromise that can be reached. But um, you know, union workers, of course, union heads, obviously worried about preserving jobs. But at the same time, affordable housing has been a decades, decades long problem. Yeah, and if it'll help some of their members, that might be a good thing. But you know, we, we we've seen you know all the, the the pros and cons discussed over the years, right? You don't want to create trailer parks, and, and yeah. you know, the, the, there is a, a a real concern about what happens and what happens on the landscape. But, yeah, if there's yeah. a balance, it would be good. Exactly. Well, by the way, just real quickly, there are some pretty nice trailer homes on the mainland these days that are very reasonable. <laughs> that's, my, that's my little plug. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Okay. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can visit civilbeat.org to read Thomas Heaton's story on modular housing on the island of Hawaii. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today, we dig into the history of the Hawaiian Scottish Festival and Highland Games. The two-day affair celebrates its 40th anniversary this weekend in Waikiki, and it's the first time it will be in person after a three-year COVID hiatus. The event features swordplay, demonstrations, musical entertainment, and athletic games. Ever thought about picking up a telephone pole and throwing it across a field? Well, that's what tossing the caber will be like. Also on tap will be weight and hammer throw competitions. A traditional Highland uh, game that won't be held is haggis hurling, but food vendors will be offering up traditional Scottish fare, local grinds, and some canned haggis, if that's what you're after. There'll be plenty of music. Traditional pipers and singers will entertain the public, and a Highland dance competition will be held in the Jefferson Elementary School Auditorium this weekend. So, for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know, where was the first Hawaiian Scottish Association Festival ever held in the islands? Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Carol S. Pearson, author of Persephone Rising, Awakening the Heroine Within. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about transforming our lives through transforming our stories. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. If you've lived here for any length of time, then you probably know that Hawaiians like to know your roots, where you came from, who's your family. Well, today we spotlight the sons and daughters of Hawaiian warriors, also known as Mama Kakawa. It's all about your genealogy. We talked to Colleen Ayu, the Kuhina Nui, or the designated leader of the group. It's small in numbers, but its roots run deep. Well, the Mama Kakawa is a genealogical society. And it, it was part of the monarchy, and many of the members were royalists, and they carried over after the overthrow as well and continued on today. For our general community, when you see the different Hawaiian societies together, you will recognize the daughters and sons of Hawaiian warriors. The women wear black, mu'umu'u, or holoku, um, and uh, they wear lehulu on their head. And the most important thing of the mama kakawa outside of the lenihoplaua or whatever they're wearing around their neck, the Lake Kukui, are the ahu that they wear on their shoulders. These ahu are not um, fraternal positions. They are genealogical names. So when you look at the back of the ahu, the designs are very different. But when we look at the backs, we know which families are standing in front of us. So, and they are generational, you know, and with this new resurgence of ahu making, um, probably under one of the most notable people today, Rick San Nicholas, um, he has taught a number of members in the societies who have now replicated their family's ahu. Because it, the ahu for the Mama Kakawa after the overthrow, um, they were not allowed to wear anything feather, anything that drew attention to their chiefly status. So I think the uh, kupuna were very wise. Uh, they made these ahu out of cray paper. And, of course, um, I guess the people in power thought it was very cute. However, they didn't realize that the way the ahu was cut, and when the wind blew it, it looked like the lifting of feathers. So the ahu is the main regalia of the daughters and sons of Hawaiian warriors, Mama Kakoa. So the visual part of it and the, the deeper meaning and the history, uh, that all comes into play. Correct. And the other societies, they wear ahu, and they are usually um, position-designated patterns, um, and so, but the difference, as I said, in the Daughters and Sons of Hawaiian Warriors, the ahu that are worn by the members are family ahu patterns handed down or even original ahu. And then as these different groups hold different ceremonies to mark either uh, the birthday, a death date, a significant day in Hawaiian history, is there certain protocol about, you know, who comes to what? Is, you know, because there are these different groups? Well, I think the Ahuhui Kahumanu, uh, they celebrate Kahumanu's birthday, and it falls usually on the same day as St. Patrick. Um, and it is their day that they celebrate and honor their namesake. The Ahuhui Kaiulani does the same thing. On the princess's birthday in October, they celebrate her birthday a long day, at, starting at Kayulani School and then the statue and up at Mauna Ala and then at her portrait. So every Ahahui has a time to um, pai pai or lift up our Lahui again and the daughters and sons of Hawaiian warriors uh, we are always at the Kamehameha statue on June 11th it doesn't matter if it's a Sunday or a Monday or Wednesday you will always find Mama Kakawa there and we hold our ceremony in the early morning about 8am and then at that time the area is kapu to our ceremony and after we're done 
others come and do the ceremony. But every ahahui does something to, as I said, pai pai or lift up their namesake or an ali'i. And also on November the 16th, the Daughters and Sons of Hawaiian Warriors take responsibility to honor King Kalakaua here at, at Mauna Allah. And they used to do it in the Iolani Palace in the throne room, and then the Iolani Palace was uh, used as an office, and so they were they came and did their ceremony here. And ever since then, they've remained here, and I think in uh, we celebrated 50 years a year and a half ago doing the ceremony here. And so what's the membership like? I mean, we have different chapters on the neighbor islands. There's only one chapter on Oahu, and I said because it is a royalist genealogical society. We all know we're Hawaii. We all know we're Hawaiians. But your genealogy has to be able to trace you back to a warrior who fought with or against Kamehameha. That's one of the levels that you can come in on. The genealogy aspect of this organization, you know, is obviously very important. And so do you folks do anything to help teach other Hawaiians how to trace back their lineage? Well, I think um, the teaching at our universities and at our Hawaiian immersion schools have really kind of taken on those many kuleana now, teaching them uh, not only language, but fishing and playing and, and interactive things. And they have actually taken on that, um, getting the children to oli, to olelo more, to find out where they come from and who they come from. Uh, but by the time they're older, they can apply for membership, but we don't, you know, go out and uh, try to recruit people because it is a life commitment. You know, it, it's not a social organization. Um, it's a very uh, genealogical organization, and um, there's great physical commitment needed. You know, um, that's very important. And so uh, anything else that you think we should know just about what makes this group so distinctive and different from the other societies? Well, I think I've shared with you the dress and that our young people in our community, by looking afar, can recognize us, as well as knowing uh, the background of each of the other ahuhui that are standing there. That's one way to start learning about who these people are. And then contacting the organization to find out more. You know, we we enjoy all the technology, TikTok, YouTube, and such as that, but that's not where we are and where we come from. I, I just hope that when people have an interest, they will approach one of us and, you know, give us their name and their number. You know, in Hawaiian things, it's always alo ke alo. It's not pepa pepa. I think, and that's one of the things we try to remember and remind each other about, even though it's expedient to do email and get it done. And um, we miss that alo ke alo, you know, exchange. That's the person to person. That's correct. Okay. Person to person, face to face, that human touch. We've been hearing from Colleen Ayu of Mama Kakawa, the sons and daughters of Hawaiian warriors. She was talking to us about the history of the organization. It is a genealogical society that was once part of the monarchy. Its original members were loyal royalists, and its goal is to perpetuate Hawaiian traditions. <laughs> We conclude our week-long series of the many groups that work to preserve Hawaii history with a look at another one, Daughters of Hawaii. They are charged with caring for two palaces, Huli He'e in Kona and Queen Emma Summer Palace, or Hanaya Kamalama, located in Nu'uanu. They are actually the oldest of the groups we have featured this week, incorporated in 1903. They were out recently to mark the birthday of King Kamehameha III, his birth site at Keoho Bay falls under their jurisdiction, and they were there to mark a ho'okupu ceremony in his honor on March 17th. <laughs> 
Manu Powers is the head of the Daughters of Hawaii. She's the first millennial named to the post and believed to be the youngest person in the organization's history. The Daughters is a long-storied organization. It was founded in, in 1903 um, by a group of uh, seven daughters of missionaries. And they saw what was coming. They could see what was on the horizon. Um, and it was quite alarming to them. So they decided that they had to take it upon themselves to preserve the culture um, and the traditions of Hawaii. I think that they were very prescient in their foresight. And so we have a very specific kuleana, um, which originated with just that, you know, preserving the traditions of old Hawaii. But our kuleana has evolved over time. And that was when we became the stewards of both Hulihe'e Palace in Kona and Hanaya Kamalama in Nu'uanu. Um, so we were the recipients recipients of not only the locations, but also the collections that resided within the uh, palaces. So two of the three palaces in the United States belong to the Daughters of Hawaii. And the stories that go along with that collection and the places themselves and the ali'i that lived there, um, the people who built them, and the stories that um, are perpetuated through the collection and through the places themselves. Talk about the, the people who started the Daughters of Hawaii. Emma Dillingham was a daughter of Hawaii. And, and sometimes I'll be in the basement of Hanaya Kamalama and I'll be looking at her picture and thinking to myself, I'm standing in the shoes of this woman and her legacy. And so what am I doing to continue to perpetuate the culture as you know she was obsessed with making sure that everybody remembered what it was like before? So these women understood very clearly what had to be done and wrote a very specific charter and gave us a, a wonderful blueprint about how to face the future and what we needed to do to ensure their legacy. However, times change, and the pandemic has showed us you know, very clearly that the challenges we're facing are, one, unknown to us, and you know also incredibly detrimental to the culture, to the people, to our value system. And so we are in this sort of small niche of cultural preservation, but yet we feel the burden of that work very heavily and understand that we have to commit to their mission and to that work and to preserving these traditions of these royal societies and cultural societies for hopefully the foreseeable future. And so as you talk about your mission and what you have to do to protect tradition, how does one get membership in the Daughters of Hawaii? Do you have to trace your lineage back to um, missionaries? How does that work? You don't necessarily have to. You can be a supporter of the organization um, by becoming a Calabash cousin. So, for instance, I'm a daughter of Hawaii. I am of Hawaiian descent, and so therefore I have that designation. But you can also be, as I said, a Calabash cousin, which means essentially you're a supporter, so like a friend of Iolani Palace sort of a thing. So you can contribute to the organization no matter your race or your lineage. And that's done through our website quite easily. I mean, I know you folks put on a, a number of events, you know, at, at the Summer Palace. Fabulous events. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I've been there many times. But it does take a lot of work to put those events on. It does. And I think that there's a perception that, you know, all of the palaces are flush or all of the palaces are going to be there forever. You know, I've driven by Hulihe'e Palace a million times in my life. And you sort of believe that it will stand forever and ever there. But the truth of the matter is that the palaces are supported by funds from the community or funds from the state. And those coffers are empty. And so... The foundation literally needs the support of the people. We are up against the literal tide um, and time, obviously, in preservation of not only those places, but these traditions. So you know, we were talking about attracting younger individuals to the organization and what a challenge that is. We're in this really interesting place where we are transitioning from sort of the the older generation, the kupuna, who have really held that space and really uh, allowed 
for us to thrive, but none of that is going to happen unless we can attract more members to the organization. And how does one go about doing that? You know, is it you have to really connect with that need, that desire to want to preserve the culture in this very niche way, in this very specific way through these organizations. And so I think we've seen it over the past you know, 20 years, this renaissance, and, and people are really embracing the culture, and it's really exciting. But there are so many ways in which to do it, and we found one that really speaks to us and that there is a physical manifestation of the work that we're doing through the palaces and through the collection, and through the stories told there, where people can actually come in the door and visit and tour the palaces. So for us, we have something very tangible you know, available to us. Not everybody has that. So we found that our formula is a very successful one in that regard. But like I said, we still need more bodies to come in the door and really feel compelled to perpetuate that mission. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, we saw what happened with the huge storm surge, you know, the waves that were just threatening, you know, our palace there on the big island. And, you know, there's so many young people that are passionate about that cause. And so, you know, maybe there's somebody with that kind of mana that wants to do something with climate change and protecting one of our cultural resources. It's an interesting thing. You know, I, I'm starting to see more and more now the tie between climate change and cultural preservation, um, especially with Hulihe'e Palace. Obviously, that wave was quite spectacular, and it got a lot of coverage all over the United States, obviously. So share with our listeners that wave that you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> so there was a wedding on the Makai side of Hulihe'e Palace, and there was a very large storm surge, one of the largest we've seen in Kona in ages. And the wave came crashing over the break wall and right into the party. And it made, you know, the evening news, NBC evening news, and uh, you name it, it was all over the place. And I happened to be in uh, Chicago at the time, and it was six hours ahead, and I couldn't get a hold of anybody. I was panicking. Um, but fortunately, that wave didn't cause much damage. Um, again, really, really shocking to see. But it is the king tides and the wind that are constantly driving against the palace on a regular basis that are causing the most damage. So you've got the most beautiful spot in Kona. I, you go to Hulihei mm -hmm. Palace, you understand why you would build a palace right there. But then you feel the salt on your face and on your tongue and the salt in your hair and feel the breeze you know, blowing past you and you realize, oh, we're up against the elements here. And um, we really have to put our head down and, and work to preserve that place. And, and that's going to require the, the help of the community. Yeah. And so as you look to bring more members you know, into the fold, these are the treasures. You're trying to protect them, uh, to protect the history, the legacy for future generations. Absolutely. And the stories that all of those items tell and that those places tell, we are hopeful, we are optimistic that that calling that I felt, that switch that shifted in my heart where I was standing on the palace grounds and looking up at Hulihe'e and thought to myself, oh, this falls on my shoulders. This is my kuleana, and therefore it is my family's kuleana. And, you know, anybody who volunteers for the organization, um, yes, there are many fun events, like you mentioned, but there's real work to do. Um, and like I said, there's tangible results that can be seen when we cooperate and, and collaborate with community partners. Um, we can actually save these places and save these stories. And that's the job that we're doing every day. Recently, there was the gathering over at Ilani Palace. And I was just blown away because to see so many members of the Royal Societies and the groups that helped to protect Hawaii's history, it was pretty impressive. It was very emotional, as a matter of fact. Uh, yes, it was incredibly impressive, but also very emotional. Um, it might be the last time we ever see something like that. And as we were all standing there, I think that was hitting us really hard. I had conversations with, you know, other heads of other societies, um, and we were all feeling very grave and wondering, will, will we see this sort of gathering again in the future? What will bring out these numbers again? And, and what's to become of all of the mana'o that exists in that procession of individuals? Um, I think that there's 
work to be done surrounding really recording and documenting those stories of those people, those individuals who've been doing this their whole lives. You know, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was voluntold to join this organization and found myself here and came to love the work and really felt a sense of pride in the work I was doing. What's going to attract other people to those sorts of societies as well, to the other societies as well? What's going to compel them, you know, when you don't have events like that any longer where there's real community coming together to honor Ali'i and to keep the, not just the traditions going, but the protocol, the pomp and circumstance, all of that is part of you know who we are and our culture. And I think it really goes a long way to gel the community when there's something like that to rally around. So if you were there at Iolani Palace last month at Abigail Cabano-Nicoa's memorial service where these many groups gathered, consider yourself fortunate to have seen all the regalia, the pomp and circumstance, which may never be repeated in our lifetime. We hope our series of stories highlighting these different groups, the Hawaiian Civic Clubs, the Royal Order, the Kahumanu Society, Halena Ali'i o Hawaii, the Sons and Daughters of Hawaiian Warriors, and the Daughters of Hawaii has helped you to understand that this place where we live is so very special. These groups help to sow the seeds so the stories of old Hawaii continue to flourish for the future. Americans want to forget the Iraq War, but Iraqis cannot. They cannot forget the promises the U.S. made to them 20 years ago. They will fix electricity, they will turn Baghdad into something amazing. Yes, it will be war, Saddam will be toppled, but at least the country will be rebuilt again. 20 years of chaos in Iraq through Iraqi eyes. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the daily. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. A ton of money is flowing to infrastructure projects these days, but finding the skilled people to do those projects is another story. We just purchased another electrical contractor because we couldn't find people. So we purchased another contractor basically just for their manpower. I'm Amy Scott, rebuilding the skilled trades next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. In today's Backyard Quiz, we spotlighted the Hawaiian Scottish Festival and the Highland Games. This year's two-day affair features athletic competitions, traditional games, food, and cultural events. It's running this Saturday and Sunday at Jefferson Elementary School in Waikiki. You may recognize some of the athletic games, such as the Open Stone Clocknert, or the Scottish Hammer Throw. Uh, Highland Games were precursors to shot put and hammer throw events in modern competitions, like the Olympics. Scottish clans will be on hand to share their histories, family, kilts, and colors. The Hawaiian Scottish Festival and Highland Games has been going on for over four decades since the 1980s and has always been held on Oahu, except for the very first one that was celebrated in Waimea on the Big Island, which was the answer to today's quiz, and we stumped you on that one. But thanks to Scott Bruce McEwen for sharing this. If you have an idea for a quiz, write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The 
Hawaiian International Film Festival's Spring Showcase kicks off tomorrow with a screening of the new film by Oahu-based director Justin Tron titled uh, Jamal Jaya. It was shot on Oahu and features uh, the relationship between a father, Joyo, and his son, James. Uh, Chan is best known for his role in the Twilight movies, but in recent years has directed a string of films featuring Asian-American characters and exploring themes of family and relationships. The Conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to sit down with Chan while on break from directing Chief of War, Jason Momoa's much-anticipated streaming series, which is set in ancient Hawaii. Jamu Jaya is about an Indonesian father and son, and essentially it's a breakup story. Joyo, who is James's father in the film, Joyo's a father, and he is James's um, manager. James is played by a popular rapper in real life named Rich Brian, and Joyo is played by a veteran Indonesian actor named Yayu Unru. And basically, James is navigating his sort of newfound rap career in the United States, and it, towards the beginning of the film, fires. Joyo as his manager and, you know, hires a new American manager. So they're just trying to navigate their lives under these new circumstances. Many people may know you best for your role in the Twilight films, but more recently you've directed several films about relationships with a very familiar feel, but seen through an Asian lens. 2017's Gook is about Korean-American brothers during the Rodney King riots. 2019's Ms. Purple is about Korean siblings de- dealing with their dad's impending death. 2021's Blue Bayou is about a Korean-American man trying to make a life for his family in the American South. I feel like more and more these stories are becoming important stories to tell. What drives you to tell these stories? Well, you know, I was an actor for 20 years and just these type of Roles don't exist, and our representation in this capacity is non-existent. And I did another film before Gook called Man Up that I shot here in Hawaii, and that was just about two Asian-American kids coming of age, a rite of passage in here in Oahu. And, you know, that was a comedy, and I just felt like those kind of films don't exist too much for our community. So, you know, just balancing the scales and, and making sure I can do it in a way that's not preachy or... And and it's also entertaining and and in a way that can be empathetic and relatable, universal, not just for our community, but can can travel outside of our circles. And I think it's important, you know, and I think with this new television show that I'm making with Jason Momoa Mm -hmm. called Chief of War, you know, it's the AAPI community and the Pacific Islander segment of that equation is very overlooked. So, you know, I'm trying to rep for all of us. I'm trying to represent for all of us. When you look back over your career and you were talking about Man Up and and, uh, the forthcoming Chief of War, I know any kind of film or television project is hard to make. It's hard. It's hard to put together. It's hard to finance. They always come with this huge amount of inherent risk. Do you feel like recent success of films like Parasite and Everything Everywhere All at Once has changed things? No. I mean, the simple answer is no. I mean... People aren't looking to make those kind of films, you know. Um, also, let's not forget, I hear Parasite's name get thrown around a lot, which is wonderful, but that's a foreign film. That's not a domestic film. We could talk about all the films that get made abroad in that category. Parasite is the same thing as, you know, a Coreata film, or it's a foreign film. It's not, it's made in a country that has their own cinematic culture and economics. Everything Everywhere, on the other hand, is is an American film. You know, it's made with American studios. And so beyond Everything Everywhere or The Farewell or Minari, I mean, I think Everything Everywhere is sort of the first of its kind where it's more on the commercial scale. You know, even when you look at something like Crazy Rich Asians, that's a lot about Singaporeans rather than about Asian Americans. You know, the films that I'm making, well, besides Chief of War you know, is how we exist as Asians in the United States. So it's still relatively not common. As Asian-American, you know, cinema goes, we got catching up to do. I mean, I don't, you couldn't compare some of these Asian-American films with some of these Asian films, you know, whether it's 
Boreta or Hong Xiao Shen or, you know, Bong Joon-ho, you know, he's like, it's just, you know, that, that we're talking about like juggernauts, you know, these, these just hugely imaginative filmmakers and comparing them with us is kind of like babies, you know, it's like, we're not making masterpieces like Parasite yet, you know, and I think we're on our, we, we, you know, we're developing. What do you think Hawaii's role is in telling stories about different ethnicities, whether it be Asians or Native Hawaiians? Are we kind of developing into an industry where that's kind of our niche? Um, I would say yes. You know, I, I live here and I am going to continue to try to bring films to Hawaii and set the setting as Hawaii about local people. And the reason being is that when you look at like a Koreatown in LA or New York or a Chinatown anywhere in, in the state side, it's not like here. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, I mean, been here for a long, long, long time, you know, even longer than, than the mainland. And, you know, I think the history and the culture is much more dense in terms of here on this land, you know, and, and Pacific Islanders and specifically Hawaiians, I mean, this is their land, you know, so there's there's culture and long, long, you know, history of kings and queens and, you know, states that we don't have that as, <laughs> as, as minorities, you know, so it's very dense, you know, and it's just being tapped. And right now, even states, they still don't understand what Hawaii is, just a, is a vacation destination. So I think there are people like Jason Momoa and that are just itching to tell more stories here. And so I think that's also the next step is how can Hawaii also facilitate an environment that these economically and also infrastructure wise that we're able to tell stories here? It's, it's quite difficult. And I think we're all trying to figure it out, right? It would be really cool to hear Hawaii mentioned in the same breath as something like Austin or New Orleans. I feel like that's something to aspire to. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely possible. Just some legislation needs to change a bit. And I'm not saying like there's a perfect answer to this. There's a lot of sort of things that have to be considered. And But I, I would rather have more industry here than maybe tourism i don't know you know but that's that's a very hot topic and and ultimately i think for there to be room to tell more of local stories about you know hawaiians and and local asians the table needs to be set what is it about these islands this culture these people that makes a, a good setting for your life and your work well personally for my life it's an absolute perfect place for me and my family. You know, Hawaii is such a beautiful family oriented, you know, giving aloha. Just I have a, a daughter who goes to preschool now and, and I have a baby on the way and, and they're hapa and there's so many people that just look like her and she gets embraced. And there's nowhere else in the world where you go on the beach. You know, if I go to Ala Moana State Park and, and my kid, when she was young, younger, she would just be playing in the water and then she'd just like wander off and join another family, start eating their food. Try that in LA, see what happens, you know? Like it's here, it's just everybody is is family and, and I love that, you know? And, and for me, I've always found myself coming back to Hawaii as a place for healing. When LA got too rough or any, and, you know, my life just was a little bit too much to bear. You know, Hawaii has always been a place for me to just feel like I can become whole again. And I've been coming here ever since I was born. But then at the same time, I also don't want to only take. So that's why I have felt the need to also service this place and, and give back by, you know, using whatever my skill set is to tell stories from here, you know, so I really am of service. I really am trying to represent all of us through storytelling. And, and um, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm doing the islands justice. And, and I hope to tell these critical stories as, as well as I can and, and, and with humility and, you know, and I'm always just from a position of, you know, asking for permission and not thinking I'm entitled to anything. One thing that I see very readily in, in the films that you've done is the importance of family. Looking ahead to the future, 
I know the vast majority of people here are excited for Chief of War. Can we expect the same sort of family storytelling that we see in your other films in Chief of War? 100%. It's what I felt like I can bring to the project beyond the epic scope of what's in it. My job is to bring humanity to it. You know, my big thing is for people outside of Hawaii to really understand, they have to see these people as human beings, not as these sort of stereotypical, archetypical sort of like natives, you know, and you have to go through universal roots to get there. And I'm telling the story about, you know, Chief of War Katyana. The core of it really starts with his family and his brothers and the decisions that they make that from the nucleus ripples out, you know, and I think it's consequential to, to his family and they also will have to bear the burden and pay the price. And so I, I'm very hyper-focused at not making these people feel like unreachable gods, but humans, you know, just living, breathing humans that have three-dimensional thoughts and, and have struggles just like all of us. And then, you know, like all the other stuff is the beauty of Hawaii, the majesty of, of it all and, and the culture and all the deep, luscious sort of, you know, traditions that we've come to try to reteach. And But it all starts with things that are universal, which is family. Thanks so much for your time, Justin. Really appreciate it, man. Oh, thank you so much, Russell. Appreciate it. That was filmmaker Justin Chan talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about his new film, Jumbo Jaya. It will screen tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at Consolidated Theater's Kahala as part of the Hawaii International Film Festival Spring Showcase. Hey, uh, always working hard. I just got it in my jeans. Uh. So much I think my brain is burning calories. I'm mostly quiet, but I'm always wildin' when I drink. To you it's fantasies, but to me it's just last week. My life is starting to look like a complete. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hana Ho Friday. We'll bring you surf stories. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you want to listen back to something else that you've heard? Find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Conversation.